back to What the Midwife Said, the podcast about how babies and families are made. I'm your host, Leah Hazard. I'm a mother, a writer, and yes, I am that midwife. In today's episode, I'll be speaking to a woman I have admired for such a long time. Jen Romolini might be new to some of my British listeners, but in America, she's been a major media mover and shaker for years. Her work as a journalist has appeared in dozens of publications and online, everywhere from the New York Times to Elle, Audible, and so many more. In 2017, she released a book, Weird in a World That's Not, a career guide for misfits, fuck-ups, and failures. And with Kim France, she now co-hosts Everything is Fine, a podcast for women over 40. My child is neurodiverse in a number of different ways, um, from you know, small things like sensory processing, how they process sound, vision processing. And, you know, this took years. This was a scavenger hunt that took me years to sort out because they were really struggling being in the world. And that was heartbreaking to me. I I really had to navigate that. And I had to calm all my fear first because I was being really reactive and I Again, nobody talks about this stuff. Like I was being really reactive and I was making like abrupt decisions instead of kind of letting things play because I didn't want them to suffer at all. Let me tell you a couple things about turtlenecks first. Okay, go. You get to a certain age and you start to you start to understand all of Diane Keaton's style choices. And one yes. of the things is at a certain age, Diane Keaton just turns fully to turtlenecks and it's because of the <laughs> neck, right? Yeah. It's because yeah. of the neck and it's fine. I currently own 22 turtlenecks. Kim and Jen talk so honestly about the decisions women make, and I knew I had to talk to Jen when I listened to an earlier episode in which she declared, motherhood is a fucking scam. Without further ado, and with apologies for some strong language this week, here is Jen Romolini. Great to see you slash meet you, Jen. Hi, thanks so much for having me here. Hi, I'm excited. What a pleasure. I have to say, um, I'm so relieved to see like your background of where you are recording this morning. Obviously, our listeners can't see you, but I'm underneath my daughter's bunk bed. And um, (laughs) this is my like home office, super professional. And all her totally disorganized mixed up books are behind me I actually had like a mini panic attack before we came on like I have to straighten these books and make myself look like a legit person but look at you it's great no it's the same well I mean I don't know I guess my shit's messy too I guess that's what we're saying here Um, oh are we allowed to curse on this podcast yeah absolutely in fact this is one of the many reasons why I was looking forward to this today, because obviously <laughs> I'm a midwife, generally have to at least pretend to be like really professional and yeah. um, not formal, but yeah, professional and polite. So I generally don't swear a lot on this podcast, yeah. but because part of what we're talking about is your assertion that motherhood is a fucking scam, <laughs> I've just decided today is like free reign on the swearing. <laughs> we're just going to go in deep. So yeah, feel free. <laughs> All right, I will. I will I will let loose. <laughs> yeah, please do because the more you do, the more I can. So it's just going to be a joint effort. Um but anyway, first of all, I have to absolutely thank you for coming on. And I want to thank you for something that um, a lot of our British listeners might not know a lot about, which is your amazing podcast with Kim France, Everything is Fine, Podcast for Women Over 40. 
because um, I'm sure so many people have said this to you, but you guys have kept me company through this hellacious year on so many like desperate dog walks, trying to escape my family, like folding the laundry. It's just been great to have you guys in my ear. You talk so much sense and I've enjoyed it so much. So thank you. Oh my God, thank you so much for saying that. And thank you so much for listening. So often Kim and I just get on the podcast and we're like, what are we even going to talk about today? And then we just talk about whatever we're feeling. And I think what's connecting with listeners is that there's just not a lot of, sadly, there's just not a lot of women over 40 who have a microphone, you know, and that's, I think that's what, why we're connecting with people, but thank you so much. It means a lot to us and me. Oh yeah. I mean, totally true. And so much of what you talk about, it's like stuff you didn't even really know you were thinking until you hear it said. Like, I think there was an episode earlier on in the summer where you were talking about like, every time you guys come on, you kind of check in with each other. Like, how are you feeling? How are you doing? And you were like something like, um, I don't even know what's going on with this science experiment that is my perimenopausal body. And I was like, yes, <laughs> every day is something different. Like what's going on with me? Is it COVID? Is it like a hot flash? Am I just sweaty? So yeah, I think it's great to kind of like hear these things actually vocalized. Yeah. I mean, and then the other thing is, I mean, bringing this into um, your listeners and what they're dealing with, which is motherhood, parenthood, you know, I'm going through all these like massive hormone fluctuations in parallel with my child going through massive hormone fluctuations. So it's just like nobody can emotionally regulate in this house. It's just, you know, (laughs) it's just like, you know, if there's a bad day for both of us, it's, it's a mess over here, you know? So it is a hot mess. I mean, I have two girls who are 14 and 18. So I'll just let that sit with you for a minute. I mean, every day it's like, okay, like, where are we in the month? And like, who's feeling what and how? I mean, I don't know how my husband copes. We have a female dog as well, which probably was excessive. But um, yeah, we're, we're definitely going through it over here. I feel like one of my things So I want to clarify, um, what I said to you about motherhood or what I said about motherhood being a fucking scam. I don't actually think that that's true. I think that what the fucking scam is, is the image we're sold of parenting versus the reality. And specifically, I think there's a lot of talk around early parenting, you know, of babies, of diaper changes and sleep schedules and, you know, sleep training and, oh, what's their first food going to be? And then as the kid gets older and you can really run into significant challenges, significant, I mean, bigger than some, in some ways, much bigger than what you're going to feed them the first time. There's less support. There's less help. There's just less talk. And part of that is because you're protecting the privacy of another person who is becoming more of a person. And also part of it is that we only want to share things that are safe and relatable. So we only share things on social media that even if they're bad, they're kind of bad. It's like, wah, wah, look at this mess. But we don't talk about the really, really big challenges that get into parenting a 
a, ch- a kid, you know, post baby, and then an adolescent, and then a teenager. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like, you know, we're faced with all of these things with our children, you know, that are so big, you know, their anxiety, their neurodiversity, if they're questioning their gender. And we are fully unprepared for these because, or we're underprepared because as parents, we have not caught up to where they are. We grew up in a totally different time. Our kids live in a radically different time than we did. And so we have no idea. We are just like, at least I am just flailing around here and looking for resources all the time. I have an 11 year old Mm -hmm. and that's where I think parenting is a scam. And I think motherhood in particular, because, you know, as much as dads help in heteronormative relationships, as much as dads help, they're praised for helping. They're treated like a dog playing a saxophone. You know, oh, you're so lucky. He changes diapers like as if it's yeah, he not helps. His. He helps. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. You know, mm-hmm. fuck mm-hmm. that. And the emotional labor, we know because studies have been done on this, the emotional labor, the majority of the emotional labor, which means taking care of the kids' emotional needs and also means, you know, scheduling the swim lessons and the math tutor and everything else falls on us. And yeah, it is like goddamn exhausting. Load. Yes, the cognitive load. It is exhausting. So I just wanted mm-hmm. to clarify the scam part because you know, the relation, the simplicity of the, not simplicity, but the relationship with me and my child, I'm very stoked for. Like I love yeah. with my kid, but yeah. it's all of this other stuff. Yeah. And I think it's very much that you're so right. I mean, in a sense, when you're a new mother and you've got this baby and your life just explodes into a million pieces, you're, you're kind of almost expecting that. I mean, it's no secret nowadays that like your identity is just shot to shit when you have a baby. So we're we're kind of like over that part. But you're so right. When you get to the point when your child is, um, I mean, I hate the term like prepubescent. That is just kind of yuck. But when you get to the point they're like a tweenager, slash teenager, you're suddenly like, where is my instruction manual for this? And as you've said, like they're growing up in a different time from when we grew up. I mean. I'm 44. Um, and when I was growing up, by the way, in America, in the suburbs in Connecticut, um, I just wanted to be, I was just trying so hard to be normal. I mean, I was failing miserably, but I just wanted to be like normal and cool. But nowadays it's like, oh, like my kid's a bit quirky and weird. <laughs> like, Or, you know, I, I, I read a piece that you wrote about how, um, you know, you were figuring out that your child is is a bit quirky and not what the teachers were expecting and not somebody that they maybe knew how to engage with and teach. And so all of a sudden now at this age, don't you find it's like, oh, okay, I'm parenting this kind of kid in this kind of world. Like, what the hell am I doing? I do find that. And, um, you know, my, my, my child is neurodiverse in a number of different ways um, from, you know, small things like sensory processing, how they process sound, vision processing. And, you know, this took years. This was a scavenger hunt that took me years to sort out because they were really struggling being in the world. And that was heartbreaking to me. Um, So I, I really had to navigate that. And I had to 
overcome all my fear first because I was being really reactive. And I, again, nobody talks about this stuff. Like I was being really reactive and I was making like abrupt decisions instead of kind of letting things play because I didn't want them to suffer at all. And that was wrong. You know, like I needed to really kind of calmly enter this situation, calmly assess, keep, keep myself calm and model calm for my child. So I also, by this age, you start to see the mistakes you've made. And that's, that's also painful by the time yeah. you have a, a, a tween or a teenager, it's kind of like the, 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 you know, you could see the, what you put the input you put in. What's yeah, you're like, oh, oh, you're no. like, oh, oh, no. Oh, here shit. we go. Oh, God. <laughs> look what I did. <laughs> look what I did, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Look what even, we made. Look what we made. But even nuances like this morning, this morning, my child said to me, um, Halloween. I mean, I don't know if, if you guys do. You guys have Halloween? Yeah, it's pretty big here now. Like every okay. year it gets more and more Americanized. So, yeah, yeah. So Halloween was huge for my kid, just the biggest holiday of the year. And, you know, just loved it, loved dressing up, loved everything about it. And now they're 11 and this morning, they were looking at um, a magazine about Halloween and they looked at me and said, I feel really sad because I'm not as excited about Halloween as I used to be. And God, that's so part of growing up, right? Like yeah. things mm -hmm. that made you delighted as a little kid start mm -hmm. making you not so delighted. And there's yeah. not anything to replace it yet because, you know, you're not old enough that you're falling in love or, mm -hmm. you know, just your interests aren't solidified that you're not like really into music or really, you know, your identity yeah. is in flux. And raising a child with an identity in flux, which is really what I think tween and, and a lot of the teenagers are, is a, ch a profound challenge. How do you how do you help them find themselves? It's hugely challenging. And like you say, it's like some like huge cosmic joke that our identities are in flux at the same time. <laughs> because on the one hand, you're like, like you say, trying to model calmness and yes I'm gonna really be very rational and reflective about this and be like super mom but on the other hand you wake up and you're like fuck am I today like what's going on in my world right what am I doing with my career where's my ambition where is um where's my purpose is this my purpose and then if your kid's really struggling and your kid's really struggling and you've focused a lot of your energy on parenting. Then you just feel like a total failure because you're like, I focused majority of my energy. I've decided to not focus on my career, but focus on, you know, child rearing and man, I've made a mess of this. And, you know, and it's not you, it's just hard not to personalize it a lot of times, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so interesting um, and in fact, another thing that I really wanted to ask you about is this tension between being at a point in your life where you're trying to reckon with your own ambitions and then also taking a back seat to this new growing person that's trying to make their own way in the world. I mean, you're writing a book now about reckoning with ambition and um, its relationship to trauma and your upbringing and how that's kind of um, followed you through your life and do you think that um, 
ambition and motherhood are in any way compatible, is it possible to live a life where both of those parts of yourself can thrive? Well, I mean, the old adage is we don't get it all. We, we get, um, we get some at different times, right? I mean, that's the sort of old adage, but I feel like ambition is to some degree and the way we think about modern ambition, and let's put this in the context of like the girl boss ethos and the lean ins and, you know, just like Mm -hmm. this, like all consuming, you know, capitalism, like I need to achieve achievement for achievement's sake. Let's say yeah, hustling, hustling, right. Hustle culture. I think that we thought we were going to find more satisfaction in that, right. than we did. I think ultimately that is hollow at the core. I think that we, we are, we're racing to get to the highest point we can in our careers and we get to the highest point and we think, wait, is that, is that it? Oh, it was more about me. It was more about my my need to race, my compulsion, my need to have work make me feel better about myself, make me feel competent because I feel incompetent, make me feel, you know, likable because I feel unlikable, right? I think mm-hmm. we hide a lot of our emotional dysfunction in work. And or at least I did, quite frankly. And oh, for sure. Yeah, me too. And in the first couple of years of motherhood, I worked constantly because I, I, I was the breadwinner of my family. My husband and I are both creatives, both writers. And I went into a more corporate track because I really had this fear that we were not going to be okay. And I had to make us okay. So I missed a lot of the first couple of years of motherhood by overworking. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if also I was afraid that, that I hid in work because I was afraid that I would not be a great parent and that I wasn't able to show up appropriately. Specifically, let me just tell you this for context. I was raised by teenage parents and I had a very tumultuous upbringing and I was pretty good at being a parent of an infant, but when it's just sort of like the basics, put a diaper on, feed it, change it, put it to sleep. I was more nervous that I was not going to be equipped for the emotional side of things. And I think I hid a lot of that fear in overwork. I think Mm -hmm. that I, just like men have done for years, you know, they don't want to be emotionally present. So they're just like, got to stay at the office, you know? Mm -hmm. And I did that for a while. And to answer your question, I think that a right sized amount of ambition and a right-sized dedication to parenting can exist together. Mm-hmm. I think that it's when both either gets out of control and gets unhealthy is when we run into problems because we're over devoting ourselves to our kids. We're over parenting and the opposite side, we're over devoting ourselves praying to this like false profit of work. But I mm-hmm. think that when things are in balance, you can do both and you can be very, I think you can be satisfied. It's not going to yeah. be easy, but I think it can feel, there can be a feeling of contentment. Uh-huh. Do you feel like you're kind of hovering around that point now? Have you kind of like looked back at where you've been and, and now feel like, okay, yeah, I get it. Like those were yes. my mistakes then. And this is what I need to do now. Yes. I take jobs now much more thoughtfully. I don't, I, you know, obviously I need to make money and I do make money. It's like, you know, it's funny because people, 
when I talk about work, people are like, oh, she must be independently wealthy. I'm not independently wealthy in any way. I don't have any sort of, you know, parental supplement or anything. I, but I am much more thoughtful in the work that I take because I understand that I need to have my work. I don't, I don't work after 3 p.m. because those are the hours I dedicate to my child. So maybe I'll work on the weekends a little bit if my husband is watching our kid. But I try not to work after 3 p.m. if I can. And I realize that's a privileged position, but I'm also very thoughtful in the jobs I take. And I also downsized my life so that I made less money so that I could do this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, because the other thing was when I was making all that money, I had outsourced my entire life. I had outsourced cleaning and grocery shopping and, you know, cooking to some degree. And not that I had a chef, but, you know, ordering in and everything. I had outsourced everything. So I wasn't connected to my life Mm -hmm. in a, in a real way, or at least it didn't feel that way to me. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to hear you say that because I think for a lot of women, when you would say to them, Oh, imagine, you know, you're getting takeout every night and you're getting your dry cleaning done and you're getting a cleaner. A lot of women would go great, you know, (laughs) fantasy land, amazing. But, It's interesting to hear you say that actually that didn't make you any happier or in fact made you less happy than your situation now. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, it's so boring, but like I clean the house on Saturdays with my child. They have chores. We do them together. These are the jobs you do. These are the jobs I do. I'm teaching them to be self-sufficient and have agency And I've started to realize how important those things are. And when they were in childcare until seven o'clock at night, and that childcare was not me and not my husband, not that you can't have amazing childcare, like everybody does this differently, right? So no judgment on anybody and how how you make your decisions. Completely. But for me, around eight years old, I realized I'd been working 60 hours a week basically up until then, from the time my kid was born up until then with like brief stints, maternity leave, et cetera. And I looked at my kid who was really struggling at that point. And I also just looked at them and said, this is going to go by so fast. This is eight years have gone by. This is going to be gone before I can even blink. I want to be a part of this because if I don't, I'm going to regret it forever. And that's when I kind of changed everything. I stopped going for big jobs. I stopped, I just stopped. And the hope is that if I do want a big job on the other side of this very active parenting, that I will be able to get one. But who knows in the ages society we live in, I'll be in my fifties by the time my kid is, you know, a teenager. Yeah. But if it's not there, it's not there. Like that was the, that was the cost for me. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Like, That's okay, because what do I want to do? Devote my time to a boss who gives actually no shit about me Mm -hmm. or or be present for my family, however messy that is. Yeah, yeah. And it's a really considered choice, isn't it? Um, Based on all this life experience that you've gained to get to this point. And it's funny, actually, to hear you talk about, like, maybe there'll be a big job at the end of this, because... You, you've actually created a huge job at the moment, which is writing a book, 
in lockdown in a pandemic year. This is something we have in common, by the way. So I'm fascinated to speak to you about it <laughs> because our books are both out in 2023. Is that right? Yours is coming yes. out. Yeah. 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 Um, and, you know, I think for both of us, in a sense, we, we've worked hard to carve out this kind of writing niche in our own ways and our own different careers. Um, but we could not have predicted that these opportunities would come in a year that has been an absolute hellscape from start to finish. Um, so, you know, like I sold my book um, kind of January, February. I think yours was was it April time when you kind of made your deal. Yeah. So you get all this amazing news, feel incredibly lucky, so super excited. And then it's like, oh, you have to write a book in lockdown, actually, while you're homeschooling and trying to keep your family alive and like just not like go insane from the pressures of everyday life. Um, And (laughs) that's quite a big job. How is that working out for you? I'd love to know. So, like I said, I'm also married to a writer and my husband wrote two books during the pandemic. Right. So basically we had to tag team and I had to, because writing a book is such an immersive experience and he really needed to immerse himself to get the chew done. So I took on everything and I was very fatigued, whatever, that doesn't matter. So I've also edited a lot of books and I've ghostwritten a couple of books. So I, I've written my, I've written, I've written one book myself, but I, I'm, and I've watched him write books and I, and I do, I, you know, I read people's books like for, to, to give them notes. I'm, I tend to be a reader for friends. So I'm familiar with the hell of this process, right? It wasn't like I was entering cold. I knew what I was up against. So I spent the first couple of months of this lockdown. The first thing I did was I tried to outline the book and I realized I didn't really know what the book was yet. Like, I knew what it was intellectually and I have a book proposal and everything, but then in terms of like sitting down to write it, I needed some more time first. Right. So I just started reading a lot and I started taking a lot of notes and I started doing that kind of behind the scenes writing that we don't consider writing and that we shame ourselves for because we're not writing, but we actually are. And we're thinking it's the thinking Mm -hmm. time. And I started having conversations with people about what I want to write. And I started that process. I'm now in the process of the barf draft, which is just, it's just, it's just how many words can I write a day, no matter what they are, because this first draft, I have to have something to work with because I can't start to shape something out of nothing. So I have about 35,000 words of just it's just disgusting. I mean, it's hard to even look at it because I'm an editor and it's like hard to, Mm. it's hard to conceive that I can write this poorly. (laughs) Yeah. Like I can't even go back and read anything I've written until I finish that first draft because I don't know if you're like this, but if I actually go back and read what I wrote the day before, I'll be so paralyzed by self-loathing. I cannot continue. Right. And you'll be like, and you'll spiral. Oh my God, nobody's going to want to read this. Nobody's going to, but then it's funny. If you go back and read things that you wrote a month ago, it actually is not Mm. as bad as you thought. You can see it with more objectivity. So I'll tell you that this is my process. So I'm I'm barfing out this draft till the end of this month. And then what I said to my husband, and that was why I told you about my husband, I said, look, I'm going away for three weeks in November because 
the shaping of the book is actually the most intense time. Once you have the barf draft, now you're in a, you know, now you're in a situation where you need to look at what you have and you need to immerse into this book in a very deep way. So I, I got accepted to a writer's residency. I've never done this before and in Iceland. So I'm going to Iceland for three oh, weeks. Wow. I know. And Amazing. It's like, have you the, been? I have not been. And oh my God, the, you'll love it. All of the, all of the residencies because of the pandemic, all the residencies in the U.S. were just like so booked, yeah. so everything, anything you could drive to. So anyway, so I'm going to immerse myself for three weeks and this is the way I'm getting around my chaotic life because I can only really write for three hours a day mm-hmm. here, you know, four maybe because I'm like yeah. dealing with the household and I'm dealing with this. So this is how I'm getting around it by taking a three week break. And I'm very lucky that my husband can, you know, take, I can drop everything. He can take everything on. And then the stage after that, I hope, and I hope I'm right about this. This is really a, um, a big guess. I'm ma- a big bet I'm making. Okay. After that, the refining, after the things in shape, the refining doesn't require as much focus. The mm-hmm. refining is you can dip in, you're punching up text, you're changing things around. Yeah. It doesn't Absolutely. require your full brain in the same way. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping that I get back from there and I refine this book December, January, February, March. My deadline isn't really till May, but I really love my editor and I kind of want us <laughs> to have a lot of time to go back and forth. So I'd like yeah. to turn it in in March. So this is where I'm at. And you know, you have to think of these things clinically. Yes. You have to think of the structure of the work clinically, because if not, your angry self-esteem monsters will come out. Mm-hmm. All your low, your self-worth, your nobody's going to want to read this, all the doubt, everything starts to like, just get into the process. So you have to be clinical about how you're going to produce the work about the execution. Cause I mean, I have friends who just, you know, they're two months away from their book deadline. They haven't written a word. Mm, oh god that terrifies me that gives me like chest pains just hearing that I mean it makes sense to me in a way that you could get to that point but it's still very painful and I think the the way you've just described that as being very realistic with yourself about the stages you're going to go through trying to take out any of that horrible self-loathing and just be methodical about it so valuable do you think that's something that I mean I know that the sort of trope of the tortured writer is just universal but do you think as women authors do you think we are more prone to that like crazy spiral of kind of self-destruction as we write I mean do you find like your partner goes through that same process or is he much more kind of um detached oh my, God, my, in a way? my partner my partner's worse but he gets in he gets into paralyzing self-doubt spirals but Um, And I don't. And I think that's because I've been an editor for so long and I've helped so many people pull themselves out. So I know what it looks like and I know what to prepare for. But Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's specific to women. I think that it's more that it's specific to being in touch with yourself, being vulnerable you know, not having an outsized ego. And I I think that, you know, there's a, there's a swagger that white, you know, cis men, white straight cis men get to have in this world. 
Um, there's a swagger. It's like, you know, the confidence of a mediocre white man, right? Mm-hmm. They just mm-hmm. don't, they just don't, they don't feel it because the world has told them that their mediocre work is good for so long that they're just like in a weird bubble. It's, it's just like, like white noise. Yeah. It's like, yeah. of course people want to hear what I have to say. <laughs> Why yeah, wouldn't wonderful. they? The, the world is dominated by me. You know? yeah. so. <laughs> oh, oh, to be that man. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I think that that's, um, I think that's the reality of the writing. And then, you know, there are people who are even more methodical, as you say, in their approach than I am. You know, I have friends who say, well, there is no writer's block. It's just days where you don't feel like writing. And I'm like, yeah. I mean, I don't think that's true, nor do I think it's especially useful or compassionate. Writing is hard. Writing is the reason why writing is hard in the tortured writer's trope. One thing is, is because it's solitary and being alone with yourself and trusting yourself is a very, very courageous act. And it is very difficult. And that's why so many people don't do it. And so many people can't Mm -hmm. do it. I mean, then on top of it, you need to have a profound amount of skill to move yourself through these stages of this Mm. giant project. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, incredible self-discipline, even when you are loathing yourself and feeling with every fiber of your being that your work is garbage. You still have to, you know, turn up every day and go, okay, right, we move, we write. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And also, I guess, when you're writing about yourself and your own experience, as you are, as I've done, and I'm doing slightly less so in this book, but a little bit, um, yeah, it makes it even more of a a just, I mean, I want to say a naughty word, I guess I just will, just just such a head fuck. I mean, like, it just... yeah. Well, you're super vulnerable. You're super porous. I mean, Mm -hmm. in order to do this well, you have to be honest. And in order to be honest, you have to excavate, you know, you have to excavate everything that's going on in you in an honest and then objective way, as objective as you can be and not be maudlin and find the place in the middle because you're still talking to an audience. It's not a diary, you know, Mm -hmm. so there has to be some wordsmithing, but not too much that it's performative. And, you know, it's, yes, it's a total mind fuck, head fuck. And I can't believe I took on a straight memoir. I really wanted to write a novel instead, but I didn't, but I guess this was the book I was supposed to write. I mean, that's just where I've, that's sort of the piece I'm coming to with it. But, you know, because then you're writing personal things and the whole time you are afraid that you're going to hurt people. But you know that in order to tell the truth, you just might have to hurt people. And that sucks too. Yeah. I mean, do you think that everything we've been through in the past year has almost made it easier just to kind of discard the niceties and be that honest and be that truthful? I kind of feel in a sense like we've all been through this fire in the last year that's like burned all the like garbage away and now as a writer as a mother even as a midwife you know in a lot of parts of my life I feel like okay this is just me now like just take me as I am um and it feel it just I don't know the tone of things feels a bit different now do you feel like that at all I do think that we are ready to be more honest about so many things about dismantling things like hustle culture 
I think that's that's been a, a big positive that's come out of the pandemic is that we are ready to expose ourselves a little bit more, right? Yeah. But I do think that when you are telling stories that are shared stories, um, and in those in the telling of those stories, you may begin to hold people accountable for things that you've never held them accountable for in your life, mm-hmm. you know. If you're writing about abuse, if you're writing about trauma, there's somebody on the other end of that, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that those things are tricky. And I, you know, I'm very fortunate to know writers who have been really courageous in this regard. You know, people like Ashley C. Ford, whose memoir, yeah. Somebody's Daughter, is so beautiful and really writes with quite a bit of generosity about trauma. You know, Samantha Irby, who writes about trauma in a hilarious way that's also tragic you know so there's ways to do it and there's an art to it but all of that takes yourself being in the trauma for a long time so that you can figure out the way you want to do it so that's (laughs) hard but i mean look that's it's also a gift i consider the fact that i get to do this and i'm getting paid to write this deeply personal book I really do look at it as a gift because who gets paid to like work out their life? Yeah, it is. It's a huge gift. Um, and it is a painful, but, but special, um, thing to be allowed to do. Definitely. I'm so looking forward to reading it. I'm actually just so looking forward to hearing what you think of Iceland. It's going to be amazing. (laughs) I've been a few times. You're going to love it. It's going to be so good. I can't wait. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be excellent. Um, well, I've got my eye on the time because I know this is like morning for you. You've got lots to do. So we, we could talk for a long time, but I'll wrap it up just with one final question, if I may. Um, I was doing my sort of ritualistic internet stalking of you this morning, as I do for all my um, podcast guests. And I was thinking, like, oh, what else can I ask Jen? Like, what like, kind of, you know, niche thing can we can we wrap up on? And um, you tweeted a few weeks ago or maybe even just a few days ago. Um, you said, fuck pumpkin spice. It's almost turtleneck season. Jen, is it time yet? Can we oh, wear it? Is it? Oh are we God. ready? Oh my God. You have just brought up my favorite topic in the world. <laughs> and we're just finishing as well. Oh no. Okay. Well, let me tell you, let me tell you a couple of things about turtlenecks first. Okay, go. You, you get to a certain age and you start to, you start to understand all of Diane Keaton's style choices. And one yes. of the things is at a certain age, Diane Keaton just turns fully to turtlenecks and it's because of the <laughs> neck, right? Yeah. It's because yeah. of the neck and it's fine. I currently own 22 turtlenecks. Okay? Wow. That and is I, substantial. I'm in Los Angeles right now, but it will become turtleneck season here in the next couple of weeks, like by November, it'll be turtleneck season here. And that will last until about March, but everywhere else in the world, hell yes, you're in turtleneck season. The best yes. season for a middle-aged lady. It's it like- is so good. I mean, hot girl summer. What? I don't even know. Who is she? What is that? I'm exactly. all about turtleneck winter. winter all the way you can layer them (laughs) under things layer them under jumpsuits wear them straight with like a pair of cute jeans and a belt you can layer them under sweaters wear them wear them all the way up so they're sort of like popped up a white yes jen a white turtleneck oh my god you can touch your hair it's (laughs) there's nothing better than a turtleneck so thank you for letting me discuss this (laughs) 
I love it. I, well, I feel like we need to have a whole part two then where we just like go deep into the turtleneck. But I'm glad we got that straight. I feel like I have permission now. Like it can happen. Roll on the turtleneck, literally. Do it every day. <laughs> I will do it every day. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. I mean, what better note to end on? Just joyous, really. Um, thank you so much. This was so fun for me. Thank you. Oh, I loved it. I absolutely <laughs> loved it. And um, yeah, can't wait to read the book and enjoy Iceland. Thank you. I just loved that chat with Jen Romolini, and I hope you did too. What the Midwife said is going on a little break now. As some of you know, I'm writing a book due out around the world in 2023. It's called Womb, the inside story of where we all began, and you can already pre-order it from bookshop.org if you're so inclined. In the meantime, you can listen back to both seasons of What the Midwife Said, leave a review, and tell me what you're up to on social media at hazard underscore Leah on Twitter or Leah Hazard on Instagram. Thanks so much for listening.